welcome to another episode of Breaking Barriers, the Asian Vision Podcast. We're very honored to bring you our guest today, Ms. Lee. Before we start, I just want to express our most sincere thanks to Ms. Lee. Thank you so much for helping to bring forward such a powerful, emotional, relatable, and inspirational episode with us. To our listeners, we sincerely hope that you can finish listening and enjoy this episode. Okay, um, so just to get started, could you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you do? Sure. Um, so my name is Jenny Lee, and I am Korean-Canadian. I was born in Toronto, but my parents immigrated from Korea in the 70s. And I first and foremost consider myself an educator. Uh, I was a science teacher for a long time, uh, for more than 20 years. And then I moved into diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Um, I was vice principal at the Bishop Strong School. And now I am the director of senior school at York House School in Vancouver. And that is equivalent to the principal role of the senior school. Okay, first question. Have you had any significant positive or negative experiences growing up that were influenced by your Asian identity? Yeah, so I grew up, I'm a child of the 80s and early 90s. So back then, racism was um, normalized. Like you didn't, you didn't really have uh, anti-Asian uh, protests or anything like that. It was just expected because there were not a lot of um, Asians that were in Canada. Um, in fact, uh, just a little history lesson for you. In the 70s, when Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's father, um, implemented the Multiculturalism Act, that's when things started to change. And there was this huge influx of immigrants from Asia, particularly from Korea in the 70s. So I am a child of one of those immigrants who came in the 70s. So um, people's exposure to Asians was really, they don't speak English because they were new. And um, probably didn't have a lot of money and definitely did not have any social power or influence. And that was the norm because this was kind of new. Like Asians weren't really in Canada up until that point. You never really heard of second generation, third generation Asians. Um, so there were a few of us. So given that, I think... Um, you know, I experienced some, I guess, casual racism. To me, honestly, I didn't care because there were so many uh, immigrants at that time um, that, you know, to me, it just it just kind of toughened your skin and I didn't really care about it. And, and, you know, I see things on like TikTok and Instagram about how Gen X is different from Gen Z, right? So we joke about that because in Gen X, like those things were all normal. Racism was normal. Discrimination was normal. And we just we just dealt with it. What did impact me, though, was seeing the racism towards my mom. And she is someone I really love and admire. And she is someone who went to the top university in Korea and was a professional singer. And when she immigrated to Canada, her whole status, everything changed and her personality changed because she was a very proud, very well-educated, somebody... Um, who had a lot of social status and she became somebody who could not speak English. People didn't take her seriously. And I would see her time and time again being dismissed by when we went up to the store, um, 
you know, because, you know, whether it's her returning something and people would say, no, you can't do that. And she's struggling to speak in English and be taken seriously because she's a small Asian woman with an accent. So that is what impacted me more than my own personal racism because I loved her and I could see how she became so insecure with experiencing that. So that, um, I think still to this day, she struggles talking to people. Um, she had a problem with her neighbor and she said, can you go talk to them? Because my English, especially when she's frustrated, her English becomes worse. And so she struggles to say what she wants to say. So I had to talk to him and, um, you know, cause she just, especially when she's distressed, the language piece I think gets in the way for her. And, um, she's not able to communicate in a way and then people don't take her seriously they just think oh she's just a small asian woman so um they don't give her the respect that you would you know if he she was a white male yeah and i think um even for like i remember this one time my dad went to the gas station and then like this was like last year so it was kind of recent and then um the cashier kept telling him to walk out and then walk back in like, and I think it was kind of, like, from, like, the pandemic, racism from that, too. Mm. Yep, definitely. Since the pandemic, I think there has been um, this greater surfacing of racism towards Asians. And a lot of it was latent, so it was just under the surface. It was always there. But just people had learned to like, you can't say that because it's because it's politically incorrect. But since then, I think a lot of it has surfaced like that frustration towards racism and not just Asians, towards many different um, racialized groups that it's OK to treat people badly because people don't have the capacity to be politically correct or kind anymore. So but yeah, when you see your parents, it's different. Right. Because you and they're vulnerable and especially when there's a language barrier. Um, and they lean on you as the child to be their advocate. It's it's something that no child should have to experience, but I think we had to learn from a very early age. I've experienced it, and I've seen so many other students before you at BSS come forward, you know, doing these same initiatives, saying, um, I can't quite put words to it, but I don't feel like I belong. And it's processing all of that out. And a lot of it isn't stuff that's happened to us. It's stuff that's happened to family members. It's even stuff that's happened to, um, you know, people we don't know, but you see it and say, that could have been my dad. That could have been my mom. When you see like around COVID, Michelle, you were talking about, um, you know, your dad. I remember uh, this Korean man was, you know, hurt very badly, beaten. So many people along the East uh, West Coast were just getting beaten up in um, San Francisco, Seattle, and Vancouver, anti-Asian racism went up by um, 700%, more than 700% in Vancouver. Um, you know, just people were, just had a license to do it. And when you see that, you think that could be me. I was thinking, um, you know, I'm in Toronto. I started to get worried about going out and about because of that too. So uh, it hits really close to home and, um, right now it may not be as bad but it's still there it's just people i think have just gone underground again yeah so how have you helped teachers and faculty create a more diverse equitable and 
inclusive learning experience for all students? That's a really good question. So um, one of the ways that I've tried to bring this to the forefront in education is to share those stories. To, so to give a platform to students to say, hey, you know, I'm not just your student, I'm Asian and my experience is different from the person who sits beside me who's not Asian. Um, and so, you know, and, and share that story, what it's like for them. Um, can you remember, like, I guess to really make more conscious and explicit the experience of Asian students. And Asian, when I say Asian, like, it's so vast. East Asian versus South Asian versus Southeast Asian, it's so different. And um, so one, bringing that nuance, um, as well as um, sharing those stories and amplifying those stories. So for example, um, you know, I will talk about my mom a little bit and, um, but I also talk about myself and the experiences that I have, because sometimes people forget I'm Asian, right? They forget that I am not white. And I think that's the worst insult. I think people try to be, um, you know, they're trying to compliment me or saying race doesn't matter. And to me, you're just a person. I don't see that you're race or stuff, but you need to see my race because my daily experience is um, informed and dictated by who I am as soon as I walk out of the school. People see me in the school as, I guess, the director of senior school principal or something like that. Yeah. But when I leave these walls, I'm an Asian woman. And when I am trying to get my car fixed or when I am shopping, you know, when I'm traveling, that's the first thing people see is an Asian woman. And they will either try to take advantage, they'll make assumptions about me. So I try to remind people in the school about that, that I'm an Asian woman and we need to see the race and the culture and ethnicity of our students because it informs their daily experience. So for example, a few years ago, I was riding along with my daughter and my husband along the Niagara River and I was cycling and we were having like a blissfully wonderful time as we were cycling along Niagara River and this truck went by and threw a water bottle out of the window and it hit me in the head. So I was like, first thing my thought was, wow, the person didn't, must have not known that I was riding my bike. But clearly, but I looked back and I saw the person knew that there was a person there riding my bike. And then the second thing I thought was, did they do that because I was Asian? Because it was, again, it was this big pickup truck, two white men, and you can't help but think, why would anyone do that, first of all? And second of all, it was around the time of COVID. So I was thinking, did that happen because I'm an Asian um, woman? And because then since that point, I was scared. And I told faculty, you know, this, I've told faculty the story around COVID. I said, um, you need to know that I'm scared to go to Muskoka right now because of what I'm seeing on the news. And people forget like, oh yeah, this is impacting you. This is impacting our students. So in our faculty meetings, we talked about it. Uh, and, and there was anti-Asian racism at BSS too. People didn't want to sit beside some of the other Asian students because they're from China. We actually had a student from 
what was patient zero? Where was that city? Uh, Wuhan. Yeah, right. We had a student from Wuhan come, and you know, I remember Mr. and I saying we got to prep and ensure that uh, people do not treat her badly because of where she's coming from, and th and that was like a year into COVID. So those are things. It's just like bringing it back into visibility that these things are happening because if it doesn't happen to you it's not going to be on your radar right just like we are not as um aware and informed about the anti-semitism that's happening around us right because it's not on our feeds like i don't know about you but this stuff comes through my instagram feed i'm sure it's going to now because my cell phone is beside me and siri is listening to me and now i'm going to start to see anti-asian racism in my instagram right like that's just how it works the algorithms but we are not um, tuned into those other ones. So people, if they don't, if, if they're not talking about it, if they're not, if they don't have that identity, it's not going to impact them. They're not going to be aware. So it's bringing awareness, like you're doing right now. Yeah, I think that's really important. Uh -huh. So um, we know that you started the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging curriculum, or DIB. So can you just tell us a bit more about the program and the impact that it had? Sure. Um, so I want to clarify that the, I, I guess I didn't start it, but I was along with Miss um, and Miss, um, we were the first teachers who were given an official position at Bishop Strong School to support DEIB learning in the classroom. Up until then, we were doing it anyway but we were doing it out of our own time. So, um, and it is required that every teacher does it. In every single course, they are required to incorporate DEIB work and learning into their classroom, just as, just as we're required as teachers to support student with, students with IEPs. Um, we're supposed to teach you digital literacy. Those are, there's some fundamental things that we have to do, environmental sustainability, it doesn't matter what course, you have to do it. So, you know, because Ms. and myself and Ms. we were passionate about it, and there's other people who are passionate about it too, of course, right? Ms. Ms. Um, Mr. Um, like there's other people who are doing the work very evidently in their classroom. But we kept saying uh, what happened was teachers would come to us in our own time, and then we became the poster person that everybody would come to, and we advocated, we need time. We can't just keep doing it out of our... Um, for free and also in our spare time because one, it's all consuming and two, it's emotionally exhausting because you'd have students who'd come up with real issues and they're crying, you're crying and every day would be like that. So there's a few people who were given time. Um, so I feel really lucky that I was given that DEIB curriculum specialist was my title. And then the first year I was given one section so you're supposed to, if you're a full-time teacher, you teach five. So I was given one to do that. And I was doing one for science department head. So I taught three courses. And then in my second year, I got two sections for DEIB and then one for science department. And then I taught two courses. So um, yeah, so that's how I got the role. And it says a lot about BSS that they, they did that because most schools still, they don't have people who, well, they didn't have anybody doing that. So what I would do then is, um, try to collate resources. Um, I actually created a website 
that and this was this was during COVID. So we were actually all online at that time. So I said, what's the best way to you know, do this learning um, and really prioritize these topics so that all teachers are actually doing this work in the class? And we were all online. So, um, you know, I have to actually really hand it to Mr. He is one of the people who advocated that I do this. But the more important thing was he gave me time in faculty meetings to do professional learning with the teachers. So normally faculty meetings, it's all like, oh, let's talk about X, Y, Z. And he's like, I'm going to give you once a month our faculty meetings to do this work and you do whatever you want. So I was like, great. And not only was it faculty meetings, it was all staff. So I created a website and I said, every month, we're going to take some time. There's a whole um, resource of everything from anti-Indigenous, anti-racism, um, homophobia, ableism, neurodiversity. Everything was included in that website. You're going to focus on one topic as homework, and then you're going to come into our meetings, and we're going to talk about that topic, and we're going to do it in breakout rooms. Because, again, this was all online. So the fact that we had that time and the school said, this is a priority, we're going to do this, that's huge because I've talked to many other DEIB people and they said, yeah, I have the title, but I'm not given any faculty time. So, you know, like it was, it was really just lip service where these other folks who were doing the work, you know, you can have the title, but one, they weren't given time off their schedule. And two, they weren't given faculty time to actually do teaching and learning with teachers. And, you know, at that time, you know, Mr was still around. I don't know if you remember her. And I remember some really powerful conversations happening um, because people would talk about like, what did you learn from this? And you'd have people learn about anti-Black racism and you'd have people learn about ableism. And we, I remember a conversation about, you know, whether or not we should use the word colorblind. Or there's some words that are actually ableist, like colorblind or that's so lame. You know, when people say things like that, there's the R word, right? Where people are recognizing now, that's actually really offensive. So we had conversations about how we have to be a bit more mindful about the everyday language we use because it's actually ableist. And colorblind was um, one of them. And the reason why we had a conversation about colorblind was because I used that once. And a teacher who was at BSS at the time said, you know what, can I talk to you? I'm actually colorblind. And the fact that you say that like that, it's um, hurtful to me because I don't see myself as any less than anybody else who has a full spectrum of vision. So I was like, oh my gosh, I am so sorry. And that is so true. So I said that and I shared that with everybody. I was very vulnerable. I made this big mistake. This was my learning. How about you? And and every teacher was like, yeah, I use that all the time, right? Like I use colorblind all the time. But um, it came to a conclusion that we realized, yeah, like our language is so powerful because us saying that so with such nonchalance um, really made that one individual who uh, feel less than, less of a person because it was using it, using it in a derogatory way. So, sorry, that was a very long answer. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to even at that granular level, talk about the work. And that's how we, I think that was how we started to get the ball rolling in terms of regular um, 
regular teaching and professional learning on that topic. And now Ms. does a lot of it, Dr. does it, a lot of it in the um, faculty meeting. So you ever wonder, like when you guys are off um, November, I think the long weekend, Fridays, we have to be in school, right? You guys are off on the Friday and Monday. Well, teachers are always in, that's what we do. We do DEIB learning, Dr. Clark's doing stuff on, uh, you know, uh, Ms. Raj is doing stuff, Ms. Humphreys is doing stuff. Teachers, we're doing professional learning on how to be better teachers, and that's what that's what I would be doing. Yeah, we didn't know about that. I also think that it shows like how important it is to amplify your own voice, just to get other people to recognize that what they say was like maybe something wrong because people don't. A lot of people don't intend to say insulting comments. It's just like people are ignorant kind of so yeah it's yeah. learning yeah. for yourself and other people what what barriers challenges or patterns have you seen that inhibit specifically young asian people from developing as leaders mm -hmm. yeah. two things so i'm going to share this because i'm sharing this to you as my former students or badminton athletes. Um, so one, it's owning your, owning your power and your strength. For me, I don't know if my lack of confidence arose more so much from white culture versus Asian culture, because Asian culture also too, from uh, many of them, East Asian culture, Korean culture, women are expected to be docile, demure, you know, like um, submissive. Uh, and that's also a Christian value too, right? So, um, and I'm Christian. So that piece um, really, I think, informed how I really shaped me as a person and being vocal, standing up for myself, um, being a uh, uh, sorry, being um, confident in who I am, that didn't come until I was an adult. So I'll give you an example. Like, I am the kind of person who, um, if there's a classroom setting, I will raise my hand and I will wait patiently and politely until somebody calls on me. I find it very hard to interject, interrupt someone, speak out of turn. That's how I was raised. But people do that all the time. And so, especially when you're an adult, that happens, like nobody raises their hands in meetings. So unless you get your voice in there, you're not gonna be heard. And then that would reinforce the stereotype that I'm quiet, I'm, I don't have a voice, right? So um, I had to learn how to get my voice in there. And I have to tell you, it, I could, I remember my hands getting sweaty, my heart beating faster, how nervous because I really wanted to say something, but I was so socialized to um, be quiet or to certain behaviors. And I want to just like dismiss all of that. Like, I want you to own your power, own your strength and be confident in that. Like, don't let anybody tell you what you're supposed to be like and what you're supposed to act like because that really shaped me for a long time. And I missed out on a lot of great opportunities as a result of that. 
So um, not being afraid to be loud, not being afraid to be sassy, not being afraid to um, talk back, which ugh, can never do that to my family, right? Like my uncle, I remember, was so mad at me when I talked back to him or I, I questioned him or I gave him side eye for something. Um, I actually feel like that's more Asian, uh, my Korean upbringing, I should say, than anything else that I had to, to fight back against. Secondly, um, this is this was unique to me, but I, I suspect it's very common amongst a lot of Asian girls, uh, is the concept of beauty. So when I grew up, I had my parents and my uh, in-laws and not in-laws, my uncles and aunts always tell me, oh, you should get the eyelid surgery. And um, I was reminded very often that I was not pretty or there were aspects about my features that were not attractive. And it took me a really, really long time. I still struggle with it. Um, to be able to look in the mirror and be able to say, uh, you would go, yes, sister. like whatever you guys, yes, queen, right? Like <laughs> I could never do that um, because, you know, that was not the norm, right? And I just internalized that I was not pretty because of my eyes, because of my facial structure, whatever. Um, now I think that's changing, but I have to tell you, I, and I thought, oh, who cares, right? Like looks isn't everything. But that on top of um, me, all the other messages that I was getting from society, and not just European society, Korean society, um, really broke my confidence and prevented me from being the leader that uh, I guess I would say I am today. So a lot of those things I still push back. But still, sometimes I will hear that voice in my head um, that tells me, oh, you know, if only this was, you should get this done. And I went to Korea lately, uh, recently, and um, yeah, I was like, oh, it's so cheap to do this. Or it's, you know, like, um, I, everybody's eyebrows are very straight. Maybe I should change my eyebrows. Like there was so many things um, that really ate away at my confidence. And so I never thought I, I, never thought I was beautiful. Um, and, I, and that may be shallow to some, like what matters about physical beauty, but it, ma it still matters. It mattered to me. Um, I didn't think I was worthy of love. I didn't think I was worthy of, um, you know, like a good partner um, because I didn't feel like I was attractive. So that I think that it breaks my heart because I see that time and time again um, with my students, right? That they also have adopted it, but you don't talk about it, right? Because Again, it sounds like a shallow topic to talk about, but it's there. Yeah. I feel like this is definitely something that a lot of um, Asian girls can relate to, like myself included. Like, um, I've always like been told since I was like a young age that I had like really small eyes, and you know, like they're like, "Oh my God, look at that girl! Like her eyes are so big, so pretty," you know, and then. Um, like sometimes when we would talk to like family friends, um, they'd be like, "Oh, like you can get like a, like a like surgery, you know, you can make your eyes a little bigger." And I'm like, "Oh, yeah, okay." <laughs> like maybe it would it would always make me like really insecure in that moment. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we understand. Called internalized racism. 
Yes. Right. When you have when you have started to believe those messages, um, Joyce, then it's then you don't need other people telling it to you anymore because you're now starting to do it yourself and you've believed it, you've accepted it as truth. And that's what I want to try to fight against. Um, you know, eyes is just one of the, like, there's so many things. Now I think it's changing again because of like skincare and like, you know, there's the cat eye. There's so many ways that actually Asian um, features have been appropriated, right? But Still, that piece, we don't talk about it in girls' school enough, but the feeling of the need to feel beautiful is something that for many, many girls and women, we still, why do you think we spend so much money on makeup or like whatever, like dyeing our hair? Because that that's the unspoken thing that's always there for so many of us. And so that's one thing that I'm hoping this generation, like your generation, will see differently. But I don't think it's, I think it's still carried on. I still see it. Mm-hmm. And I also feel like there's like, because on social media and whatever, because of the shift of being people being more confident in themselves and be like, oh, accept who you are and whatever. I feel like that almost kind of silences people more because it's like they're embarrassed to admit that they're not confident in themselves when in reality it should be something that you know you can talk about with some someone and like confide in how do you see the future of asian leaders it's very general opportunities or challenges that you foresee Mm -hmm. um so there's always going to be challenges you know, we're women, so there's challenges for women, and then there's challenges for people of East Asian or Asian descent, South Asian, wherever you're from. Um, but I honestly think that the biggest way that you can fight against, if you're someone who identifies as Asian, or I guess has social, I shouldn't say identify as Asian, because there are people who identify as Asian who are not Asian. I, I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um I think the best way to combat against this and to really make a path for future leadership for uh, Asian women is to uh, not adopt those messages, to fight against it. I could never do that for myself while I was growing up as a kid. I could not do it. Um, The funny thing is, when I became a teacher, because I started seeing it happening to my students, I started to get so angry And for them, I was able to do the thing that I could not do for myself. It's like when you have a younger sibling and you see them getting bullied and you're like, oh my gosh, you, you, or your friend, right? Like you see them getting bullied, you would step up for them in a way that you might not do for yourself. And I started to, um, it started to come together both. Like I started to step up for my students and I started to step up for myself. So I, I feel like the future of, uh, leadership, um, really, so much is now possible because you know even this very thing of a podcast to talk about this is totally unheard of it would have been totally unheard of in the 80s and 90s people would have laughed at you not because there was no such thing as a podcast but people would be like what are you talking about there's no racism because 
back then we were so in denial. Uh, if anything, we are much more aware of uh, the the challenges that are there. We're talking about it, the fact that we're talking about it, and looking in inward and you know asking yourself, how have I adopted those messages? How am I giving power to racism and to discrimination? Um, you know, the very you doing that by being a confident live when I see you on your saxophone, like <laughs> that when you play with confidence, you combat that very thing for future generations of young Asian girls who, um, you know, who look and go, wow, I can be a really powerful saxophonist um, and uh, make that way. You make that possible because now you're, you're representing, right, what it means to be a leader. Right. And you're doing that for yourselves and hopefully other people are doing that for you.